Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about working from home parenting distractions. And then what does work ethic look like today? You're listening to The Common Good. everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. We are so glad that you are here today. I think I probably forgot to ask you this yesterday. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Uh, you know, I still think it's the snow looks nice out there. I'm looking out over my neighborhood right now and it's still snow is piled up. And, uh, you know, it is kind of pretty now that we're done <laughs> shoveling it, of course. Uh, but yeah, I'm doing well and uh, enjoying the week. How about you? How's your week going? I think the snow is so stupid. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It is it is beautiful. I I'm sorry to keep bringing this up, but like it feels like we didn't have hardly any snow at all, and then I had knee surgery, and then we got all the snow, and I'm like, what the what the heck? Like it's There's no doubt about that. So I'm like hobbling, and like I I this is too much inside baseball. I like way pushed it the first week back, and my uh, sister in law is a nurse. We like this is gross. We like sent her photos. And it's been, yeah, I won't get into the details, but she's like, yeah, you, you're doing too much. You are not resting at the way that I can tell you from those photos. Like that's so, you know, my rock star oh, no. wife, like yesterday, she's like snow blowing and she's doing the trash. I'm like, honey, I'm, I, they, she said I need to like chill. It's like so painful for me to chill. I hate not doing stuff to a fault, you know? So I, yeah, um, I, I would, I would, wife. I would like to say that I'm enjoying it, but I'm not like it kills me to not be able to like, you know, bend down or like lift heavy stuff or shovel or any of that. So, I mean, that was a lot of snow the other day. And that was, (laughs) yeah, I can imagine that 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 being the week that you can't shovel, probably, even though it's understandable, probably wouldn't have gone over well if it were me. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah, kind of a bummer. I'm going to have to make it. I'm going to have to be extra romantic Valentine's Day or something. I'm going to I'm going to figure it out either way. All right. So. This article over at Religion News, it's, uh, what's it, a week a week plus old, but that's okay. We don't mm-hmm. have to do stuff, breaking news all the time. Here's one. I just, man, I just found this like resonated with so many conversations I was having. Um, I have election protesters and never Trumpers in my pews. How can we move forward together? Here's the subheading. The fractures and old friendships are forcing us to ask some difficult questions. For starters, does our Christian faith truly transcend our political opinions? Should it? And I thought that's that's pretty much said in three sentences what you and I have been trying to say for like right. <laughs> a year. This is why I love good writing, man, because I feel like this is something that you and I are navigating. But this isn't just for pastors and leaders. I think a lot of people are feeling this weight and tension of like, OK, I saw some stuff that people in my church were posting. Yeah. And I'm not a sure that my Christian faith transcends that. B, I'm not sure that it should. I think that's that's a lot of the conversation I'm having. So. Yeah, interested in this discussion. Why don't you get us into it? Yeah, that that should question is a real fascinating one. Uh, he wrote, he's a pastor, Chris Davis. He wrote, I stepped into the pulpit on January 10th, feeling an extraordinary weight. Four days earlier, 11 miles from our church, some of those protesting the certification of the presidential election broke through the U.S. Capitol. The weight came not only from the disorienting images of the day, but also from the disparate ways I knew those hearing my sermon viewed the week's events. I knew that watching online was the mother of, quote, Elizabeth from Knoxville, whose brief interview were storming the Capitol. It's a revolution had been seen millions of times online. 
in the sanctuary sat a woman who'd been praying at the Capitol on January 6th, another who accepted QAnon narratives, and a young man who had just returned from campaigning for Kelly Loeffler. Also in the room was a black immigrant who, out of his experience of American racism, later told me they wouldn't have reached the Capitol doors if they had been a different color. The never Trumpers in my congregation were horrified by the president's role. A few members were so unnerved by the Capitol incursion, they had sought out pastoral counseling. And he goes on to talk about their political diversity within the church and asks the, the important question, how do we as a church move forward together after the Trump presidency? said, I don't think we need a new program or the next expert to address the question. Rather, the answer is found in the fundamental elements of church life, worship, nurture, and mission around the gospel of Jesus. However, fractures and old friendships along political lines force us to ask some difficult questions. For starters, do we really believe that what, uh, what we say we believe? Does our mm. Christian faith truly transcend our political opinions? Pressing into this requires dogged, at times relentless commitment to maintain the unity. What does that look like in real time? Let me pause that. How do you answer that question, man? What does that look like? How do you? And you and I have been wrestling with this on air, off air. Uh, I've shared with you about people in my church uh, on very different sides of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. and, and that only got amplified in November, December, January. Uh, how are you wrestling with that as you continue to move forward here? I'll be honest, man. I, I think it's a Scott Saul's ism that you've referenced, or maybe we've read a number of times where he talks about, you know, our unity or alignment with other brothers and sisters is more and more important than our unity or alignment with our, you know, people who share the same political beliefs. Mm -hmm. uh, there are times that I found that very difficult. <laughs> yes, <laughs> to be honest. Yes. Like, haven't you found there have been times where you see something? that manifests in the name of Jesus and you're like, nope, I don't, I don't see Jesus in that. I don't see any of my own conviction or proclivity in that. And I'm having a very hard time saying like, well, but the bond that we have is Jesus people is greater than the, you know, than the other side of this political thing. That's a little embarrassing to say as a pastor, because you, you know, you'd like to think that that's just never a struggle. And they're like, well, hey, as long as we have the blood of Christ in common, and there's space for disagreement. I think what we're talking about in this article is deeper than just simply space for disagreement, obviously. And I think a lot of people are feeling that it's also a little unfair for two pastors to have this conversation because ultimately, like Brian, you've you've shared some of those conversations. But ultimately, if you say something either in the pulpit or on the show or online, people may disagree to a point so intense that they're like, well, I just need, I need to go to a different church then, you know, Hi, yes. but they, they have the, they have the option to say like, well, we're going to, we're going to go somewhere else. You know, like right. you're not going to go somewhere else. You're the lead pastor, you know? So there's a certain level of imbalance, I guess, in that regard, which is why I think this author, what they say next is so important when, you know, when asking the question, what does this look like in real time? Uh, they say it must begin with our worship. If when we gather on Sunday morning, the first category that comes to mind for myself or others is whether they are for or against Donald Trump, Christian unity is dead in the water. Jesus's model prayer challenges our priorities, lifting our attention from our leaders on earth to our father in heaven. The reputation of God's hallowed name must trump political agendas and the prayer for God's kingdom to come must supersede any longing for America greatness. That's a great that's a great sentence. At our church, we seek to make these implications explicit in our worship service. When we breathe in the air of heaven, it should suffocate smugness or resentment over political differences. 
What uh, do you think of that paragraph? That's a really great line. And uh, I, I do think something you mentioned before, people might be like listening and going, really? Like you guys are kind of overstating this. I think we both have legitimately actually have people who have left our churches because of oh, yeah. either yeah. something we've said or not said. Absolutely. Uh, and understandable. But also sometimes we take this from like, how am I going to deal with people in my church a lot, sometimes it's how are the people in my church going to deal with me and and not being on the same page. But uh, I, I do appreciate that kind of uh, that it begins with our worship. Uh, later on, he's going to say the only way forward is the way upward. Uh, and and I think then you begin to have some ability. I don't think it I don't think it uh, uh, I don't think it it fixes everything. Uh, but I think then you start to have the ability to have unity and and talk again and begin to see yeah. each other in this way. It's a hard path. A lot of, man, I've had to block people from uh, on Facebook from my own church. If mm-hmm. you would asked me a couple of years ago, if I would have done that, I would have told you not a chance in the world, hmm. uh, but I just couldn't handle it anymore. And, and I think a lot of people feel that way right now, whether you're a pastor or not. And so I think there's a lot of hard work to be done. This is not to just go, Hey, just, you worship together all as well. I think that's the right. starting point that says, okay, now maybe we can build upon this. Yeah, kumbaya is not unity, and I, I think that's well said, Brian. We we have to. It's going to take work, and probably a lot of it, but it's it's worth it. And again, like everything, we'd love to know what you think. This article is up at our Facebook page. What do you think is the way forward? How how should we be navigating these things? Should you just leave if you don't like what's being said or not said, or is there a different way about going through all of this? Uh, coming up next, though, a buddy of mine named Brad Briscoe posted a quote about the Sermon of the Mount uh, as the blueprint for the Christian lifestyle. We're going to talk about that next here in The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Did you know we have what's called a digital footprint? And that's apparently a a good thing. Isn't that Mm -hmm. interesting? Like when, were you a Boy Scout at all? I was not. That's surprising. Uh, It feels like really surprising. Yeah, you you give off kind of a Boy Scouty vibe, I think, for sure. Uh, thank you. And I would also say that y- you and I both grew up in the church. I was part of Boys Brigade, kind of like the Christian version of the Boy Scouts. But really, we just played dodgeball there. So that was fun. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm not going to lie. Don't don't love that title. Uh, <laughs> Boys Brigade. <laughs> I've never heard of that. I had, we had one called Whirly Birds, maybe. Does that sound really? familiar? You yeah, grew up but, in the Christ, you grew up in the Christian Missionary Alliance and never heard of Boys Brigade? Nah, my my parents protected me from that. I, <laughs> now, if if memory serves me correctly, though, I do believe I I do believe I was kicked out of Boy Scouts. So, nice. if nice. that's the case, I likely wouldn't have survived in Boys Brigade either. Easy for me to say. Yeah, I don't. Um, how do we get on this topic? Because then the uh, the uh, the match of it was the girls went in in the church to Pioneer Girls. Do you ever hear of Pioneer Girls? No. So how? Wait a minute. So how come the boys got the boys brigade two Bs, but then girls was like girl girl pioneers, pioneer girls. Yeah. No, I I don't know where the name. It wasn't. These are like nationwide deals. This wasn't just my church. These are like nationwide organizations, kind of like Awana and stuff. So pioneer sounds kind of familiar. Let's just spend the whole segment talking about this. Let's just (laughs) let's just reminisce. Anyway, how we got here was. We have a digital footprint. And I was saying that in camping, the idea was to leave as small a footprint as possible. But in this new digital reality, you want a digital footprint, I think. Right. Is that true? I think so. (laughs) I think so. Yeah. Either way, all that to say, longest intro to date, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. 
We'd love to hear from you. How about that? How much time did we burn just then? That was like two and a half minutes. minutes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Amazing. All right. Well, that's probably this is the right segment to do that in because I don't have an article for uh, this segment. I have just a Facebook post and it was by my friend Brad Briscoe, who's quoting someone else. And you can research if you want who the author is. Brad chooses not to include the name of the author, but just the book it's from. And I think intentionally, because I know that many people, if they saw the author, they would write this off entirely. Oh, which, really? Uh, I think so. I think that's like I've certainly at times put things online where I put it in quotes to you know make it very clear this isn't my idea. But if it was, I'm trying to think who I've done that with, like Rob Bell. I'm like this. I think this is actually really good insight. But I know plenty of people would see Rob Bell and they're like, nah, they they dismiss it entirely. So I don't I don't include it. So that's kind of what Brad does. I would love. Well, how about you read it then? Would you read it and then we can talk about it a little bit? Yeah, uh, Brad Briscoe writes important words, especially for those who tend to lean heavily towards a political party. He quotes this from Jesus's plan for a new world. It says the Sermon on the Mount is the very blueprint for Christian lifestyle. And most scholars see it as the best summary of Jesus's teaching. But we can't understand this wisdom with the rational dualistic mind. In fact, we will largely misunderstand it while convinced that we got it on the first try. Jesus taught an alternative wisdom, the reign of God, which overturns the conventional and common trust in power, possessions, and personal prestige. Ooh, lots of P's there. That's a good pastor move there. Uh, The poor in spirit don't have to play any competitive games. They are not preoccupied with winning, which is the primary philosophy in the U.S. today. Jesus is recommending a social reordering quite different from common practice. Notice also how he uses the present tense. The kingdom of God is theirs. He doesn't say will be theirs. Hmm. That tells us that God's reign isn't later. It's now. You are only free when you have nothing to protect and nothing you need to prove or defend. Trapped people have to do what they want to do. Trapped people have to do what they want to do. Free people want to do what they know they have to do. Mm. Admittedly, it takes a while to get there. That's that's good stuff. I guess I would turn on you. Why did you uh, want to start there? Why did you uh, what, what was it about that quote that you were like, yes, I want to talk about that one? Well, I mean, to be honest, and I think Brad is brilliant, but he uh, how he begins it, actually. And again, you know, when you're doom scrolling Facebook, if something doesn't mm-hmm. capture your attention in what point three seconds, you just move on. So when he said important words, especially for those who tend to lean heavily toward a political party, I really appreciated that one. We've talked a lot about politics lately. We're going to continue to talk about politics to some degree Two, though. It felt like I appreciate even knowing a bit of his his own uh, kind of bent and background to say, Hey, this actually applies to anyone who leans really heavily into either or any party. He's he's not taking a slam at the right or the left. He's saying, and you know, and kind of like full Brad Briscoe slash Jesus fashion. Like, who's I, I? I heard a pastor the other day. He was talking about the third way of Jesus. That's a term that we're probably really familiar with. He's like, the third way of Jesus though isn't center. The third way of Jesus isn't like ah, compromise of both. And we kind of find like a middle lane. He's like third way of Jesus is option C. And when we tend to think of like third way of Jesus, we're like, ah, somewhere in between these two. He's like, he's like, I think we missed some of the imagination of Jesus. So it's part of what I appreciate about, about Brad's post and even just the winsomeness that he knew, like, I'm not going to include the author's name because that might be polarizing. So I'll let people decide. But you said, even after reading it, uh, what did you say? That was pretty powerful. Or there was a lot of truth to that. Like, well, I'd love yeah. to know what, what's kind of stood out to you. 
Yeah, the line that jumped, you know, when you read something like this and there's usually a line or a word that kind of leaps off the page. Uh, for me, it was, it's that part where it talked about the porn spirit, that they are not preoccupied with winning, which is the mm. primary philosophy in the U.S. today. That's the one that jumped off when I read it before the show and then read it again here for everybody. This idea, this preoccupation that we do have uh, as Americans, quite frankly, to win, to be the best, uh-huh. to be uh, the one who stands out and to go, you know what, the porn spirit, the the Christ follower uh, who Jesus holds up is not the person preoccupied with winning. They're they're preoccupied with other people winning, with holding other people up and they have different priorities. So that's one that stood up. And then every time somebody talks about the concept of the kingdom of God being now versus in the future, I always find that to be a great um uh, thing for me to remember, because I can slip into the, OK, we're living now and God's kingdom is coming someday in the future when, uh, you know, when the sin is gone and all this stuff. And, and to be reminded of, like, no, this is the present tense, I think, is yeah. something that we've all got to wrestle with and take to heart. And, and again, I think a lot of people might really struggle with some of what he was saying there with regards to the kingdom of God is theirs, not will be, because I think there is a real temptation to say that Jesus is Lord, but then live like he's Lord elect. You know what I mean? Like he's Lord, but of like some future reality, I still kind of call the shots here and now. I'm still kind of king of my own kingdom. And we w- we wouldn't use that explicit language, like, because we I think somewhere we know that's not right, but we kind of still live like it's true. And when you talk about the, you know, this this passage of scripture, um, one author articulated this way, he says, these, these aren't like to-do's, yeah. Of like, oh, go live like this. He's saying the divine benediction rests on this type of person. Someone who's poor in spirit recognizes, man, there's there's no amount of actions that I can do to earn God's favor, to earn my way into the kingdom. Like there's there's a real freedom in that. And I think when we forget that, like you said, when we get obsessed or preoccupied at the very least with winning all the time, and even if it's winning with good things, that's that's mm-hmm. part of where it gets tricky in church world. We're like, well, we're not talking about winning in any kind of like nefarious, terrible way, we're winning, you know, for the kingdom. We're winning for church growth. We're winning for baptism. I think sometimes we can trick ourselves and just, well, that's, yeah, we're still getting preoccupied though with like kind of up into the right Western models of success when I think sometimes she just is inviting us to something really, really different. So either way, I know that's just a, uh, a Facebook post, just a quote from a book, but I would encourage you read it for yourself. It's posted up on our Facebook page. What do you think? What do you like? What do you dislike? What do you agree with? What do you disagree with? That's up on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next, this is a conversation I've had with a number of people just this week. Six strategies for parents struggling with work from home interruptions. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Oh, hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. I love this article from uh, the Washington Post. Every once in a while, we try to do segments that are just really like practical. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. we, we think you might find this useful. And again, we're going to have to kind of pick and choose. You know, you can read the whole thing up on our Facebook page. But here's the thing that I know a number of people are dealing with right now. The headline is six strategies for parents struggling with work from home interruptions. And I don't know if you want to share or if this is a reality <laughs> that you've had to deal with. I know we <laughs> poke fun on like, you know, your dog, Pippa, exactly. barking in the background every once in a while, or the 
almost like clockworkness of the cooking of popcorn in your house. Yeah, yeah we had a discussion um, about that with. My I'm, sure, I'm sure you did. <laughs> but is this is this something that you hear other other uh, parents and other work at home people struggling with? Oh, absolutely, and and I think. Uh, in the beginning of the pandemic, we all all of us were working from home exclusively. I think this was a huge deal. Now, I think <laughs> I don't know if you feel this way. I know you work from home, but like I've started working from the church just to get out of the house. And, and yeah, other right. people I know are like, OK, I just have to get to my office, even if it's like a part. But, yeah, working from home has huge benefits. There's certainly been things. I know for myself or for a lot of other people I know where you're like, man, I didn't realize, you know, the, the amount of family time I've been able to have or this or that. But there's certainly some drawbacks to it that I think we're all still navigating, whether it's kids in school from home uh, <laughs> right. or adults or or maybe it's like the, you know, the mom or dad who wasn't working. But now everyone ever having everybody in is messing with their schedule. Like it's just everyone's schedules are messed up from this. So, OK, uh, full disclosure, by the way, um, we are reading this using a, a, an additional website that allows us. <laughs> should we be admitting this? Probably not. Probably not. But, but yes, no, you're in now. Too far it in. Allow, it allows us to read articles that we don't necessarily have a subscription to, uh, which creates a very interesting kind of text block that doesn't <laughs> differentiate between the article and ads. So if Brian or I just read something that feels like it was totally out of left field, that's, that's why. why. That's exactly why. So again, even worse, it's a list, but there aren't numbers. So this might be difficult. <laughs> At least it's bold. <laughs> At least it's bolded. So why don't you get us into these six suggestions? These six strategies for parents struggling with work from home interruptions. Yeah, absolutely. She says these uh, these strategies can help parents get more done now and when life gets back to normal. So I'll read the first one. Uh, schedule the swap. Trying to work while being the adult in charge of preschool age children is almost impossible. So the simplest answer is don't always be in charge. Hmm. A few hours of paid childcare per day can feel heavenly. But if that's not going to happen in two work from home parent families, your best bet is to formalize coverage for each other. Considering consider an 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. workday. This could be split into two shifts, eight to three and one to six, with each parent alternating who gets the shift. One to three, hopefully being nap time for little kids or screen time for older kids. So it could be double booked. When each party truly covers, keeping the kids out of the other party's hair, each parent will get 25 fully focused, predictable work hours each week and four to six probable hours with the nap swaps. Again, it's not ideal, she writes, uh, The beat, but this beats both parties being interrupted all day long. So it's basically taking a tag team effort going, okay, I'm on now while you go work, just work and vice versa, yeah. uh, scheduling it out. I think that's helpful. So the second one here, right after an ad, I'm told, uh, says match the right work to the right time. Some work requires focus. Some does not. It's tempting when the kids head out for three hours of hybrid school to clean out your inbox first. You see progress. You can delete emails while sitting next to a first grader who's trying to complete an online assignment. You can't write a major proposal for a new client. So plan each day is to do to take advantage of any focus time, which is a good strategy for non-COVID times, too. If your colleague uh, colleagues all become chatty in mid-afternoon, that's the time to delete those newsletters, not that precious morning block when most of them are off in other meetings. Hmm. Again, that might not totally apply to like church work, but I think it's a helpful way to think about it. Um, because I'm that same way and like nail on the head too. cleaning out my inbox. I see progress, like just to go from yes. like X amount of unread emails to zero. I'm just like, ah, yeah, that's, yep. I, I love that. Like I heard a pastor yesterday who said, oh, I, I hate email so much. I only oh, check my email once a week. Once like, a week. 
I don't know how Man. you do that. I don't. No. Maybe they have. Maybe they use Slack or something too, like in addition to it. But there, I, there's just no way functionally I could do that. But I like thinking about the difference between focus work and non-focus work. I think that's good. That's really good. That was my morning this morning at church. I went in for the first hour and was like, I'm doing emails. Not, yeah, I have totally. a list of people to email. I have another one to answer, other emails to answer. That's what I'm doing. So mm-hmm. this next one, especially you and I having two jobs, I've tried to get better at this one. Some days it works, some days it doesn't. Work before the household is awake. Speaking of those precious morning hours, early mornings can be a great time for getting things done. On days when you know the distractions will be thick, getting up early and knocking off the day's big must-do has benefits beyond the 60 to 90 minutes you'll actually log. And -hmm. he goes on to say, I once interviewed a business leader who would work for an hour in a Waffle House before going into the office and how much he could get done that way. I found this in our own home. Now, when the kids have school, they're up much earlier, and this makes it much more difficult. But I tend to be the first one up in my house, like... If nobody has to get up for everything, for anything, I'm always the first one up. And taking that as like some work time has actually been really helpful for me. Yeah, as part of my kind of New Year's, I don't want to call it a resolution, but let's just call it what it is. And like most of my early morning now, though, I took a quick hiatus because of the knee surgery thing, but isn't like work stuff, but it is like working out and mm-hmm, some meditation mm-hmm. and some Bible reading and some brain exercises, which I still feel like sets me up better for the rest of the day. Anyway, I feel sharper, I guess, throughout the day and not only sharper, but like a line, like you begin, you know, scripture reading and some meditation, some Lectio Divina type stuff. It, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty incredible. The effects it can have. All right. We, I, they're not numbered. So I don't know how many we have left. Uh, an, analyze and troubleshoot. If you've got older children, understanding the nature of interruptions can help you minimize them. Take notes for a few days. If you're frequently asked for snacks, maybe they need to be made more accessible. If you're doing tech support, try teaching a troubleshooting session. Check the inventory of school supplies. Post the day's meal menu in the kitchen. You might also decide that certain bids for attention are best met. Uh, Online learning gets lonely just as working from home gets lonely. You can lose a morning battling a child's request to play a game of cards during her breaks from classes. Play on the first request, and she might move on to playing independently. Mm. Interesting. That's pretty good. Two more. One more here. Use signs and share schedules. By mid-elementary school, children can understand that there are times when mom and dad can't be distracted. So talk through your schedule over breakfast. Kids might appreciate that a call with a new client requires quiet, while a call with a longtime colleague does not. To reinforce this, put a stop sign on your office door when you can't be interrupted. This works best if you then share the times when you are fully available, perhaps coordinating your breaks with your kids' breaks and heading uh, outside for some fresh air together. That's a good one. Okay. Lastly, do we got time for it? Let's do it. Use a later list. Although kids often get blamed for productivity woes, we should be honest. They aren't the only source of distraction at home. Undone chores can be equally pernicious. You sit down to ponder something important and then think, Hey, I need to move the clothes to the dryer while you're up. You notice that there's an unopened mail on the counter and there goes 20 minutes. Oh my gosh. Guilty. Jeez. One solution. Keep a notebook next to you while you're doing any sort of deep work. If a thought or task pops into your brain, write it there. Then you can tackle it, quote, later during a scheduled break. This goes for work distractions too. hunting for information. You know, your colleague sent in an email means going into the rabbit hole of your inbox. So don't do it until your break for coffee. Focus is hard enough as it is. You don't want to distract yourself. All right. I should say it. And I'm like really excited. We're actually going to have uh, the author of this article mm-hmm. on the show tomorrow to talk about this and her book a little bit. So you're not going to want to miss that. I know we're out of time, Brian, but briefly, does one of those six like really kind of jump off the page to you? 
Yeah, all of them, the intentionality they all require yeah. does kind of jump. But I, I do love the one only because, as I said, I, I've made this kind of a goal to do and I've kind of slacked off a little bit that get that using the time where only I'm awake for some for some work time instead of just, you know, watching Sports Center and laying on the couch, I think uh, could really help me in something I want to I want to start doing again. Okay, so I mentioned this uh, yesterday. I'm trying to be intentional, especially this week, to kind of like weave some some themes here. And so I want to kind of stick with this this theme of work because I found I found this article fascinating. It's just simply called "The Tyranny of Work." Jobs have become for so many a relentless, unsatisfying toil. Why then does the work ethic still hold so much sway? That's coming up next here on the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. We're so glad that you're here. My name is Ian Michael Simpkins. His name is Brian James Fromm, and we're so glad that you're joining us today. Uh, we were just talking about work, mostly like work distractions. And I, what I appreciated about what she wrote is this doesn't just apply to like work at home tensions either. A lot of those principles are things that, you know, you can implement if and when you go back to some kind of normal office context, which for plenty of us, you know, maybe that won't be the case. Maybe you're like, nope. I've decided from here on out, I'm staying at home. But I found this uh, this article. I don't. Do you pronounce Aeon or is it A E O N newsletter? And I'm not sure. I think it's Aeon, like you said. But I, it's funny you say that because I was staring at anything that has it's a four letter <laughs> word with three vowels in a row. You're like, I have no idea how to spell that. How to say that's that? A, that's a lot to. Yeah, you know exactly how to spell it. But yeah, exactly, you know. it's in front of me. <laughs> I'm looking at all the necessary information. Uh, it is interesting though, and I think this. I this doesn't stem from a specific conversation, but I felt like as I was kind of you know combing through this, I was like, oh, I've I've heard so many of these things before, you know, from other people. So it's called the tyranny of work. The subheading is jobs have become for so many a relentless, unsatisfying toil. Why then does the work ethic still hold so much sway? So this idea that plenty of people have jobs that they're you know they may not leave, but they're like, oh, it's just a slog. Like it's really and probably deserve or should take more time away or you know better prioritize rest but there is something about the phrase work ethic and you you and i were raised in a similar era at the very least don't you find that that's a pretty strong if not like yeah. internalized motivator like my god i mean i gotta i gotta hustle i gotta i want to have a right. good work ethic especially if you're you know leading an organization or whatever so why don't you uh, it's a long article we won't be able to get to all of it but why don't why don't you get us into it a little bit yeah, and since it's a long article, the first half of it is is a story basically about uh, a, a boy, a guy by the name of Andrew Russell, who uh, they use his story of being incarcerated and and kind of the view on jobs that while you're incarcerated, they have you working. Uh, but let me jump down what the author says. Says years ago, I set up a weekly Google alert for the phrase work ethic to help me gather material for the book I was writing. I've read thousands of these articles over the years. As individual stories, the alerts are only moderately interesting. A significant percentage of the pieces written in American newspapers and magazines that contain the phrase work ethic are about sports, as star athletes are almost always routinely praised for their tireless practice makes perfect commitment. Others say the same about politicians and a good portion of op our op-eds by elected officials or business leaders complaining about the pathetic state of the work ethic among today's youth. Taken right. as a whole, however, they illuminate a severe anxiety about a fundamental precept of the American civil religion. The work ethic is a tentpole of national identity politics. Reading between the lines, across the media, or even just skimming the headlines gives one the impression 
that we're a nation under attack. One national poll in 2015 found that 72 percent of respondents said the United States, quote, isn't as great as it once was. The principal culprit was the country's declining belief in the value of hard work. More people thought, quote, our own lagging work ethic was larger threat to American greatness than the Islamic State economic inequality and competition with China. Let me pause there. That's uh, I never really thought of that, but it's so true. Having kids uh, that are teenagers or preteens right now, you often hear people talk about, oh, they don't have a work ethic. This generation doesn't have a similar work ethic. We heard it about our generation compared mm-hmm. to the generations of the past. They don't know how to work. Uh, and, and it's interesting because it's different. My kids are growing up in a different culture, but I certainly wouldn't say it's one that lets them skate by without a work ethic. Yeah, and it's going to actually trace some of the history behind the idea and its implementation, which I think is fascinating. I, I wrote something a couple of weeks ago. I promise I wasn't trying to like tee up my own <laughs> tweets, but uh, I was reading about work ethic somewhere else. And I remember thinking, why have I never heard the phrase rest ethic? And like it just sort of it wasn't a very clever tweet, but I was like, man, if we only ever speak of work ethic and never rest ethic, how how in the world are we surprised that there's an imbalance? Like it's all you know what I mean? Like and I'm pro work and pro ethics, you know, so I'm like, yeah, that was what was kind of tricky to me. I'm like, yes, I this is almost like my go to sin is like overwork and overcommitment and overproduction. You know what I mean? Like there's so it's not that I'm anti that and I probably have some curmudgeonly tendencies like ah no it's first in last out you need to be (laughs) working hard all the time and you talk about you know what previous generations said but yeah the more that we learn about previous generations yeah they they might have been harder workers maybe but there's also like massive gaps and huge oversights to like mental and social health and boundaries and margin and i know somebody somewhere that's listening right now rolling their eyes at me even using those words but i think we're learning a whole lot more even when you look you know, compare us to other industrialized countries. We're like we're st- we're still working significantly more per week than a lot of these other industrialized countries. And I think I don't know. I think that there's a, a correlation to some of our inability or disinterest, at the very least, in better rhythms of like rest, Sabbath, vacation, margin, and, right. and all those things. That's right. And I would say you you hinted at something very important there that for years, I know I have always thought this way, work ethic equals the number of hours you work. It doesn't necessarily uh, – I can work a lot of hours inefficiently and poorly <laughs> yes, and yes. just get a lot of hours, right? <laughs> right? Like you think of past generations if you worked in a factory. Like, you know, there, the number of hours did correlate to something. But right now, I know people who get much more done in 20 hours versus some people who are working 50. And – uh, and it's it yeah. So it's not always work ethic equals number of hours. It's an it's a part of it, but it's not the yeah. only one. This article goes on to say, and I think this is kind of the home run line: the work ethic has another source too, a need to prove ourselves as worthy mm-hmm. citizens in capitalistic society, yes. a capitalist society. Those deemed worthy of benefits, rights, privileges, entitlements are those who can show they do legitimate paid work or have done so in the past and have therefore contributed to the state of the nation. This dimension of the work ethic has historically been associated with a class-wide identity of being producer. So like in our culture, uh, you gotta pr- you're, you're only worthy by what you can produce. You and I have talked about that. Often culturally, that's how it's seen. Uh, and so, you know, you got to have that strong worth ec- ethic, be, be productive so that people look at you a certain way. I think a lot of this idea about work ethic uh, 
stems from how will people think of me? Because to, to have a strong work ethic is to be thought well of, to be seen as lazy is to not. Right. Uh, so I think that's a very important point they make here. Yeah, and somewhere here in the middle, this author says that Americans work many more hours, about eight hours more than Germans, six hours more than the French per week, and endorse the work ethic at higher levels, including low-income workers and the unemployed, which, you know, that's just a, a snapshot. You, you mentioned sort of the home run line. Let me read what I thought was sort of the home run line of the whole article. It says, attributing our exceptional work hours to an, ideo an ideology woefully mistakes cause for effect. Ideology isn't the driver of our lived experiences, but the product of them. Whew. Our ideological commitment to work is the result of incessant and repeated activity, literally doing our jobs day in and day out. And there's nothing we do with as much regularity, intensity, and unquestioned submission as work. I would love, 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 love to talk with somebody who's perhaps written like a theology of work or something like that. Yeah. I think that's really important. You know, I, I do believe that the invitation that God gives to Adam and Eve in the garden to partner with him in like ordering and cultivating the world, that's, you know, that's work. The invitation to work is something that's sacred and happened before the fall. A lot of people think like, oh, the reason we have to work is because they sinned. They're like, no, that we see this before the fall that they're invited to, to be, you know, co-collaborators here on, on planet Earth. So I think that work is, deeply sacred and really, really important. But when we, man, like you were saying, when we get it out of whack or we see that yeah. as a means of achieving some kind of significance or purpose or meaning, uh, that's, that's where I think it gets really tricky. So, you know, I know that work is kind of a, a hot topic right now. And uh, this is up at our Facebook page. We would love to know what you think. Coming up next, I, I just love this headline and I love this article. America is not as divided as you think. Yes, really. That's coming up next here in The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, is America as divided as we think? And then Robin Chambers from Focus on the Family will be joining us. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to our Du of The Common Good. You ever see Hot Shots Part Du? Oh, I, that was totally in my wheelhouse. That was like junior high, high school. Absolutely. I was not expecting, I was expecting you to maybe say yes, not that was totally in my wheelhouse. Like of genre of films that Brian from uh, ascribes, subscribes, subscribes was, to Hot Shots yeah. Part 2 is it. That was right there with like the naked gun and all of those where it was just like, just not beyond silly. They were just stupid. But that like that was the like when I was in junior high. So I was the perfect crowd for that, too, where it was like, like, this is just going to be outlandishly dumb, but it's going to make you giggle. That was the Hot Shots movies for sure. Do you think Naked Gun would translate today or no? Does it? No. Did it age well, dumb. do you think? <laughs> I, I doubt it. I have not watched it in forever. I'm guessing if I were to sit down and there's there might be inappropriate moments. I don't remember. But if I were to sit down with my kids and watch one of the naked guns right now, I have a suspicion they would look at me like, what are we watching right now? I guess for everything you suggest you guys. Watch. That's, right. that's probably that's just right. a, a child parent relationship through and through. Well, speaking of uh, divided opinions, I found this over at WBUR or Wubur, if you're uh, interested <laughs> in the phonetic. Uh, America is not as divided as you think. I just found this to be such a breath of fresh air. We've done other stories on research from like the more in common group and uh, and groups like it. So uh, this to me and it's got this wonderful photo on the cover 
uh, like photo. a woman in a, in a Trump hoodie and a woman with a Biden hoodie, and they're engaging in friendly conversation. So why, why don't you get in, get us into this article? It, we at least hope that's friendly conversation. <laughs> it looks <laughs> no, friendly. There's no, no fisticuffs does. yet. Yeah, it does look friendly. And uh, know that this article is written just before the uh, inauguration, so right. some of it looks forward to Biden's inauguration. In fact, this per- first paragraph says. Uh, President-elect Joe Biden's inauguration speech is almost certain to include notes of unity, which it did. His aim, it's been reported, will be to urge, quote, a divided America to come together. But that sentiment can feel naive, outdated even, especially after the first two weeks of 2021. Political polarization is straining our democracy. Political science research links polarization to democratic breakdown. At its extreme, it can send a country sliding into authoritarianism. We know polarization creates opportunities for leaders to dismantle democracy and highly polarized societies uh, get caught in gridlock, making it difficult to reach decisions and implement policy. Sounds familiar, yes? There is no doubt that polarization influences democratic ideals and principles. It is also true, however, that polarization is influenced by democratic norms and practices. So Mm -hmm. now he's going to get into some research. Research shows that almost 70 percent of Democrats and Republicans believe the country is, quote, greatly divided on basic values and beliefs, and that negative views of individuals from either party towards those from the other are at an almost half century high. But there's also a growing body of research suggesting that these perceptions of difference are out of whack with people's actual positions and belief. Uh, This research on false polarization or meta polarization shows conclusively that we perceive ourselves to be more polarized than we actually are. The author is going to get into why that is. But Ian, we have talked about that before. But I, I even though we've talked about it, that does surprise me. Like I talk a lot about the polarization of our of our culture. Uh, but the author here is pointing out that there's actually really good research saying that the actual positions people take are not as polarized as you think. Which, again, uh I imagine somebody maybe hearing this is thinking there's just no way that's true. This is too pie in the sky. This is just a just a kumbaya article. There, there's a ton of substantial research linked in this article, and I mentioned you know the more uncommon group. There's another one called the the perception gap, and they and a lot of them are pointing to the same thing. It's interesting that I I hardly ever see my newsfeed flooded with that kind of data. You know what I mean? Like it's it's very rare. Like hey guys, we might be closer than you think like and we've talked about because you know with uh oh, what was it called the social dilemma there's a lot of incentive it seems like from both those who run and own social media platforms but also those who pay dollars to them to keep things heated like there's a real yeah. motivation there and i'm not saying necessarily it's some nefarious single source type of evil plan although it might be it might be nefarious that might be a fair word um i find i find this information fascinating not just that i my sense is that it's true but also that it's like it's talked about so rarely so it's it's two parts and i i'd, I'd love to know why you think that is or if there's particular science or data in here that you find especially compelling Yeah, I I think it's this part that just says research over the last 20 years shows that not only are people not as polarized as they think, but they actually share many ways of thinking about social issues. So it it takes it this extra step, right? Not only are we, according to this article and research, not as polarized as we think, uh, 
but that actually there's a lot more crossover, which is a big difference. It's not like we're on two different sides and we're always on different sides, but we're maybe a little bit closer than we think. But instead, what this author is saying in actuality, not only are we closer than we think, but there are issues in which we cross over each other into agreement or, yeah. uh, you know, you might be always on the right, but I, you might actually be somewhat on the left for this one issue or two issues mm -hmm. and vice versa. Uh, and, and I find that to be fascinating. The fact that it's not just we're closer than we think, but that there's actual crossover, that it's not so black and white that I'm I'm Republican on everything. I'm Democrat on everything. But that it's a lot more nuanced. And like you said, if we knew this more, if this more flooded our, our streams and whatever else, that, then maybe we would be have a better idea of how to work together, talk together yeah. and go, yeah, we're not enemies. We're not against each other. And we could just debate ideas because there are going to be places where we agree. Let, let me uh, let me just fling a couple of terms out into the airwaves because hopefully that maybe will inspire someone to Google them or learn more or read this article on our Facebook page. Since the chasm between perception and reality can be explained by something called the availability heuristic, a cognitive bias in which our perception of the actual frequency of something is based on how often we hear about it. The mm. constant attention to our differences is making us think that we are more polarized than we actually are. Social scientists who study what's called norming have found that people's perceptions of what is normal are powerful in shaping behavior. By hearing so much about our differences, we overestimate them. Eventually, our misperceptions of how polarized we are guide how we behave. This same effect is part of the reasons that conspiracy theories like QAnon take root. The more people hear them and the more people they think believe them, the more the outlandish becomes feasible. That I like. I want to. I want to frame I that. I think that makes it's exactly what you were just reading. Is what we were saying earlier about who ultimately stands to benefit from us believing that we're more polarized than we actually are. I'll let you fill in that blank. Uh, but like personally, like it makes sense to me that media, both social and otherwise, and politicians, like there's there's a real uh, ROI for them. I think to perpetuate some of these narratives and man i think as christ followers we have a real responsibility to, mm -hmm. to stand against it sometimes yeah and it's the phrase you've used often the whole idea of an echo chamber when when i am only talking to the people who believe what i believe it not only cements that what i believe but it 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 demonizes those who don't believe the same thing again when they might actually be more like me uh than i would uh i would ever think the article closes this way Surely we need to take on polarization. We can't allow it to grow. But the way to do this is by choosing to focus less of our time and attention on what divides us and more of it on what unites us. If we advance the narratives of shared fate and solidarity that we have, see have seen glimmers of, we can avoid falling back into the familiar to America's trope. Shifting away from a country divided narratives is the first step in bringing us together. I think this is this shakes up what a lot of us think about our country. I think that's why this is important. And then there's a whole nother layer about the church's role in this. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I think this is a really helpful article. Totally agree. And I would encourage you to read it and then read the studies and articles that are linked to in it because, and it might take you some time. I, I really, really think it's worthwhile, especially if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I just think it's really, really important. Like always, that is up on our Facebook page at Common Good Talk. Coming up next, Robin Chambers, Executive Director of Advocacy for Children at Focus on the Family, is going to join us here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks again for joining us today. And uh, one of our partners that we really uh, appreciate here at WILL is Focus on the Family. You can hear Focus on the Family every Monday through Friday at 1130 a.m. And we are really thrilled to be joined from Focus on the Family by Robin Chambers. Robin, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Hey, it's our pleasure. Would you just take a minute or two and introduce yourself to everyone? Absolutely. As you said, I work at Focus on the Family, and I get the joy of being the executive director for Advocacy for Children. And I always laugh and say that's quite the title, and but actually <laughs> my favorite title is Grammy. I have three grandkiddos, <laughs> uh, so that's my favorite title. But I do absolutely love um, what I do at Focus, and I get the joy of working in our foster care and adoption initiative of mm. raising awareness of children um, currently in foster care that need desperately need forever homes. And then the other side of that is my role in our sanctity efforts. And I head up the Option Ultrasound program and our content communications for all things life. Oh, that's awesome. And Robin, uh, we were reading here that you were part of the small group of pro-life leaders who participated in the March for Life in Washington on January 29th. I know it was very different because of COVID. Uh, just what was your experience? What was it like? Uh, how did that day go in Washington, the March for Life last week? As yes, as you said, it was very different this year. Um, and, you know, a lot of that was due to the pandemic and Jeannie Mancini and her team wanted to be really sensitive to, you know, not doing the big mass gatherings. So, mm-hmm. Um, Instead of thousands and thousands, um, there were 50 pro-life leaders that were invited to um, do a very different march this year. And, you know, I I was giving an update yesterday and I said it was very, very solemn, but not in a sad way. It was very reverent. And I think we were all very aware that, um, yes, it was very different. And a lot of that is because the pandemic and there's been so much death because of that. Um, but it was very reverent in that, you know, there's been a lot of um, policies that have changed under this new administration and wanting to be very, very bold, you know, and standing up for life, um, but doing it in a, in a very loving way, um, you know, not compromising the truth. And everyone I talked to on Friday as I was, I was kind of weaving my way, you know, in and among the crowd and talking to um, Benjamin Watson, Abby Johnson. Father Frank Pavone was there, um, and that was very much the tone was, let's be unified, um, let's mm. still stand for life. And that was, for me, just um, a real shot in the arm, I think, of seeing the unity and seeing people very committed um, to still standing up for um, the least among us. And so it was a joy to be there, um, a reverent, solemn time, but very much mm. a joy to be part of that crowd. Well, yeah, one of the things that I've I've both read and said myself is that if if we're going to be pro life, we can't just be pro birth, right? So, I, what I would love to know is how how are you serving women both before and after they give birth? Yeah, what well, one of the things that we do through our optional ultrasound program is we work with pregnancy centers across the United States. And that's one of the things we look at is, you know, yes, the medical is, you know, huge. That's a huge piece of a young woman seeing, you know, what's going on in her body and that that's a life and she's choosing life. But we also look at pregnancy centers that are more holistically looking at her care. Um, And that could include setting her up lots of referrals for um, maybe an OB-GYN who is pro-life and can, you know, take 
Medicaid, or it could be helping her get her Medicaid uh, certification. It's also looking at organizations that we can partner with. You know, Focus is very, very committed to partnering with those who are doing something really well. And instead of trying to take over and, and do that, we want to support them. And one of the organizations we work really closely with is Embrace Grace, and they work with churches. You know, mm-hmm. that's one of their goals is to get that young woman in a church. Um, and we we often joke and say, I think that's scriptural, you know, that we, <laughs> that we get these young women in church and that they're mentored by older women in the church. Um, and those churches are surrounding those girls and helping with housing and helping with transportation. Um, something as simple as helping her write a resume and teaching her how to interview well. And so it's just teaching her all of those resources and all those skills so that she can be the best mama she can. And that is including her spiritual health as well. Yeah. And then, Robin, I'm curious, Ian and I are both parents. Uh, we're both dads with kids of very different ages. Uh, could you give us some tips to parents out there of how you can raise your child and how you can have these conversations of pro-life issues with your children and kind of help them form a worldview from an early age? What a great question. And, you know, that's one of the things we've been working really hard on at Focus um, is starting those conversations. Even when they're little, you think about, you know, toddlers, what, how do they know this? But you start talking in ways that they can understand. Show them pictures of a baby in the womb. And of course, you're not going to say when you're going to say in, in her mommy's tummy or, you know, whatever. But you're talking about life in a way that's full of excitement and joy. Your words matter so much to our kiddos. And I'm sure they've repeated something that you thought, oh, oh, I didn't mean to say that. <laughs> so yes. just, yeah, just think about those words that you can say to little ones about what a joy it is. And, um, you know, one of the, for instances I give, um, when I had my own unplanned pregnancy, a lot of the really negative comments came from people in church. And I don't believe it was out of maliciousness. I think it was out of a, an uncomfortableness and not knowing what to say. And so instead of saying, Oh, well, so-and-so's daughter is pregnant. I suppose college is out of the question for her. You turn that around to your kiddos and it could be your, your toddlers all the way through high school age. And you say, Hey, did you hear the chambers is going to have, their daughter's going to have a baby. I wonder how our family could support that family. Hmm. So you're starting to build um, this awareness that life is valuable, that life is worthy of being protected and supported and so it just starts really, really young, everyday conversations um, like that. And, and you just start building that joy and that expectation um, that life is, is exciting and valuable. And so I think we start, um, you kind of start putting those seeds um, in their little hearts and their little minds and you just grow that. Um, and, you, you know, you have those hard conversations when they're old enough to have a conversation about what is abortion. Um, not in a graphic way, obviously, and certainly appropriate to that age. Um, but you want your teenagers to feel comfortable coming to you. Um, you know, mm. they might have a friend who's going through this and you want to be that safe space. And so just being really willing to have a very, very transparent and vulnerable conversation is key. Yeah, that's really good. I'm, I'm going to try and shoehorn two questions in here. One, uh, one of the things that I really appreciate about our audience is that they're, they're not all just here in Chicagoland. They're actually listening all over the place. And we know that there are, you know, pregnancy resource centers, all over the world. And I'd love to know, like, what, what do you, what do you think that resources like that centers like that actually need? Like what are, what are some ways that people could, you know, come alongside or partner? And then lastly, as we wrap up, how can people get a hold of you if they want to know more about you or your role and what you do? Then the last question for us is very easy. It's just Robin.chambers at F O T F 
www.thrivethinkbusiness.org. So love the conversations, love the questions. Um, reach out anytime. I'd love to talk with um, anyone that's, that's kind of has those questions on how to get involved. And then how to get involved, go to your local pregnancy center. They desperately need volunteers. That is the lifeblood of what they are doing. And that could be something as simple as sorting clothes for their baby boutiques. It could be you and your family walking in their annual walk for life to help raise funds. It could be giving of your resources. Um, You know, sometimes the Lord is very, very gracious um, with finances. And those folks are usually, you know, the ones that are saying, how do I get involved? How do I give? Where do I give? That's really key. Um, But then also being willing to be a mentor mom or a mentor dad, um, Mm. being willing to go volunteer as a client advocate. They desperately need people who can come alongside and say, choose life. And we'll help you through that and we'll support you during your pregnancy and even beyond. And so it's just getting involved at your local level. That's great. Our guest today has been Robin Chambers, Executive Director of Advocacy for Children at Focus on the Family. Robin, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks so much for having me on. And you guys have a blessed evening. You too. Thanks. You too. And you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Howdy ho, neighbors. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We are so glad that you are here. I don't know, Brian, you've actually probably gone out of the house a little bit more than I have. Like Mm -hmm. when we're doing the show, I often like imagining someone listening, you know, on the radio, AM 1160, and they're driving, uh, maybe they're commuting. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I, at least early in the pandemic, I was leaving just so infrequently that anytime I went on the road, I was like, what are all these cars doing out here? I was, I was amazed at like how normal, or how like traffic was still a thing. And I was like, how, That's right. how is there congestion, guys? There's a pandemic. But I'm like, oh, well, I guess I'm out in traffic. So who am I, who am I to say? But, at know. least wear a mask when you're in traffic, when our cars are this close to each other. <laughs> well, okay. But I've heard some rationale for like why that actually could to. be a good good idea that's not what this segment is about it's actually an article from the atlantic entitled stop keeping score which i easier said than done i'm not going to like this article very much and i chose it but (laughs) i did want to make sure i uh, tackled holidays before we forgot are you ready for holidays i am ready it is groundhog day and i i encourage you i imagine everyone's watched the bill murray movie at this point in their life right uh the froms watched it on Saturday, okay, Friday, Saturday, uh, I remember it being a lot funnier than it was. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, my kids were looking at us like, "How much more? How many more times is he going to wake up?" <laughs> oh, it's funny. You were bringing this up in the last segment. How you, the way that your kids look at you when you suggest a movie, this is very yeah. fresh in your mind, is what you're saying. Where you yeah, took a swing and it did not land, huh? My wife took the swing. She chose the movie. But uh, yeah, Damn, it was like it was OK. Movie. I remember I remember that movie being better than it was, but it was fine. It was good. Well, it is. It is uh, Groundhog's Day. It is Candlemas in Liechtenstein. So happy Candlemas to you. Happy Candlemas. Uh, world Wetlands Day, which is international. Okay. So the world is celebrating the wetlands, wetlands, wetlands. Mm. What? Wetlands, wetlands. I say, chairman of the board, chairman of the board, chairwoman of the board. I don't. Okay, um, <laughs> it's also National Tater Tot Day. Pauline, give me some of your tots. No, go find your own. Come on, give me some of your tots. Oh yes, now we're into the good holidays. <laughs> <laughs> so far on this show, Brian, you've said Hot Shots Part Two is in your wheelhouse, and, and, and Tater Tots. And tater tots is- <laughs> 
<laughs> I'll stand by both of those. Yes, I will. Listen, I'm not. I mean, no, no judgment. Okay. Uh, here's another thing. I'll be curious to know if you've ever heard of this before. It's um, National Heavenly Hash Day. No. What is Heavenly Hash? I'm- it's like a, it's like a, it's a, it's a sweet type thing. I think there's like whipped cream. Ooh. Maybe. Uh, it's weird. It's like a, I think it's like a fruitcake ice cream. Type. I think there's like coconut and pineapple or oh. fruit or nuts or. I'm going to look this up as you're talking because it might sounds be thinking, glorious. Maybe, I might be thinking of trail mix. That might be what I'm thinking of. Um, <laughs> it's also, though, it's safer Internet Day in the okay. U.S. So I don't I don't know what we're doing to make it safer, but there it is. Uh, okay, well, we've successfully now burned, geez, a lot of time. Do you want to get us you're into this really, Atlantic article? I do, but once I say you're really good at these where it's the most random stuff, the heavenly hash is almost exactly as you described it's like no. bittersweet chocolate roasted almonds and marshmallow with ice cream like it's kind of like rocky road ice cream but yeah it looks I, yeah but i also said coconut and i know pineapples you, but... you lost your confidence but you were you were in on it early <laughs> thanks man all right here's the article yeah. from the atlantic stop keeping score she who dies with the most check boxes wins right wrong this is from arthur yeah. brooks who i think personally is brilliant and uh, again, a long read, but lots and lots of good wisdom here. Yeah, he starts out by talking about how he's a scorekeeper. Finds yeah. You can find all sorts of goals that he set for himself to gauge his success by certain birthdays. He goes on to say there's nothing unusual about this tendency to keep score. Google 30 things to do before you turn 30 and you'll get more than 15,000 results. Researchers writing in the Journal of Psychological Science a few years ago uh, observe that people are naturally motivated toward performance goals related to round numbers and birthdays in particular can often act as landmarks to motivate self-improvement. Building a 30 by 30 list, however, is a misbegotten approach to happiness. Not that anyone in our material and achievement oriented society could be faulted for thinking this way. Of course, every cultural message we get is that happiness can be read off a scorecard of money, education, experiences, relationships and prestige. Want the happiest life? Check the boxes of success and adventure and do it as early as possible. Then move on to the next set of boxes. She who dies with the most checked boxes wins. Right? Uh, Wrong. Uh, He goes on to say, I don't mean that accomplishments and ambition are bad, but that they are simply not the drivers of our happiness. Mm. By the time many people figure this out on their own, they've spent their entire life checking things off lists, yet are unhappy and don't know why. We will pause there. Uh, A, that preaches. <laughs> uh, and B, I just, it's so true because I think we would all agree uh, intellectually that as I check the boxes of things that I said I'm going to accomplish, that that will not ultimately produce this happiness and this fulfillment that we're all looking for. And yet, as Arthur Brooks points out, that is exactly how a lot of us live. Well, I like what he writes next as the economist Joseph. Shum, Shumpeter? Shumpeter. Yeah. Is that what you would say? I'd say Shumpeter. Yes. Shumpeter. All right. I feel better. Uh, once wrote that entrepreneurs love to earn fortunes, quote, as an index of success and as a symptom of victory. That is, every million or billion is another box check to provide an entrepreneur with a feeling of self-worth and success. 
given our finances, most of us don't have this exact problem. However, <laughs> we do the same thing all the time in our own way, whether it's taking a certain job for what it says about us to others or selecting friends for the social prestige they bring us. We have every evolutionary reason to want to keep score in life. Passing on genes is a competitive business after all, but there's no evidence that Mother Nature gives two hoots whether we are happy or not. And in fact, this kind of scorekeeping is a happiness error for two reasons. It makes us dependent on external rewards and it sets us up for dissatisfaction. I feel like we've talked about this a mm -hmm. bunch of times and not surprisingly, Arthur Brooks just says it a ton more poetically than we could ever say. Uh, but do you find that there are, are I don't want to say Christian, are there spiritual implications to some of this? Like as someone who preaches and teaches and leads people, do you kind of run up against this in your own community? Uh, yeah. And when I look in the mirror, <laughs> like yeah, yeah, we yeah, do totally. this as pastors, right? Like, <laughs> oh, here's the score. What, what might a pastoral scorecard be? Right. I have X number of people. I want to have X number of people in my church by right. the end of the year. Right. I want to, you know, this or that. And uh, man, one of the lines I've stolen from you, I've used it in my church. I've used it for other things nice. as well is the, uh, you were not human doings, we're human beings. And I think that's what this is getting at. Mm. It's mm. if I only do this, if I only complete this, if I only complete, and there's nothing wrong with goals in this. It's just, what are we getting from them? What is it? You know, if that's where we're hanging all of our hopes for fulfillment and happiness and meaning, then, then they're going to be lacking. But this idea that, no, no, the, the, my greatest value and my greatest worth comes from who I am, uh, you know, my, the Imago Dei created by God in his image, loved so much that he sent Jesus. Uh, when that becomes where I get my self-worth, then, yeah, go out, run after things and try to accomplish. But know that that's not ultimately what defines you. And so it's interesting to see this in a place like the Atlantic, to hear it from the pulpit. It's kind of the same thing coming at it from two different ways go and be really careful what you look to for meaning in your life yeah and he mentioned there's a whole section here where he says psychologists have found that uh extrinsic rewards can actually extinguish intrinsic rewards leading us to enjoy our activities less he goes on to talk about a study that's there mm -hmm. and i yeah, there's he actually has a, a list that's kind of why i selected it because i know that you're a a big lover of the lists. Um, yeah, man, we didn't get to it. Man. We didn't get to it. You're going to have to go read it on your own. But uh, I know we're all out of time. But like, what's what's one pastoral takeaway you would give people? Because I think a lot of people who are maybe caught in this, they stop shy of actually saying, well, I'm doing this for my significance because they know that that's not right. So what do you say to the person that's like, maybe they're doing this, but they haven't yet quite admitted or owned up to or come online to the reality that that's what they're actually doing? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say, uh, A, do you show yourself any grace when you don't when you don't complete your mm -hmm. list? <laughs> I think that's, that's good. That's a big sign as to like how you think about that. And then I would encourage us all uh, to give some actual thought, like not just in passing, but some actual thought that what does it mean that God created me and loves me? Uh, and that I'm, you know, the human being versus a human doing. Does that actually move the needle for me? Is that at all important? Or do I go back to, yeah, but I have to do this and this and this. I think we can kind of self-assess a little bit and see where we're at. That's good, man. I think that is a good word. And I would encourage you, like always, head on over to our Facebook page. Don't just read it. Give us your thoughts. Weigh in in the comment section or shoot us a private message. We would love to know what you think. And we've been trying to kind of land the plane each show with either kind of a, a blessing, a benediction, or some kind of some kind of sending. Maybe it's too churchy a word, but like a commissioning. And so I found this by Carrie Newhoff to be really good. What is the church's mission and why does it matter? It's coming up next year in the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm for the last segment of the day. I still think we're not supposed to say the word segment. I think that was actually in the original mm-hmm. word doc of things not to say. Have we have we covered the words that we're not supposed to say? I on, think people know we say them every day. <laughs> <laughs> not not the words that'll get you fired, but like the professional words are like, don't, right, don't right, say right. break, don't say commercial, don't say segment. And we pretty much say them all the time. Yeah, what do we what was one that was really hard for me to break? Uh-huh, not break. That wasn't a joke. Um oh, when we come back. That was another one. Like, where are you going? You're not going anywhere. Like you're just staying put. You're like, that's that's a good point. Either way, as I've mentioned, we've been we've been trying to think through like the end of the show in particular. You know, a lot of times we're hitting headlines, we're hitting stuff that's pretty timely, sometimes controversial, at the very least a little bit heated. And thinking through like, all right, what would be a helpful way to sort of end some of these shows as a sort of like an exhale sort of like all right heading back out into your home or the world or whatever it is that you're doing and carrie newhoff puts out more good content more often than almost any other human on planet earth it's ridiculous i've it must be in a loop or something because (laughs) there's so much good stuff and every time i'm like ah this there's no way this is also going to be good and it, it is it's amazing um he wrote here this was on january 21st about the church's mission. It says, what is the church's mission and why does it matter? I think this is mm-hmm. critically important right now, not just the first part, what is it? But the question that I think a lot of people, especially people who aren't in like professional church ministry roles, because I think sometimes, Brian, we, you know, as pastors, we can forget the second half of the question, why does it matter? Like, well, it's, I'm a pastor, that's what I do. You know, like sometimes we can fail to even ask the hard questions, like why, why should people care what the mission of the church is. So I thought this was timely for uh, a number of reasons, and I would love, if you'd be willing, for you to get us into it. I sure will. First of all, who would you take in a uh, content battle? Would you take Newhoff or Stetzer? Oh, that feels like don't make that me is, do that. That is one versus two right there. <laughs> yeah, but one of them gets free health care right now. So that, I mean, if you're going to go battle royale, because he's Canadian. I was like, which one gets free healthcare? But he is Canadian. You're right. <laughs> Newhoff is Canadian. You were like, why why does he know this? Yeah. Yeah. Why stats are getting free healthcare? <laughs> uh, oh boy. All right. He goes on to write, without a doubt, you've already realized it's more complex to be a church leader today than it was even a few decades ago. Mm. The vast majority of churches are struggling in some way. It's time to rethink our future mission, Newhoff writes. Attendance is down or struggling. Uh Christians who are attending church are attending less often. Add this to the reality that the culture is changing faster than ever, and our response becomes even more critical, and the change we need becomes even more urgent. In many ways, what the church is going through is reflected in other industries, like what's happening now. Some companies have sabotaged their future by confusing the issues they were facing. Others have adopted and thrived. As always, in leadership, just a few companies Key perspective shifts can be the difference between thriving and surviving or between thriving and surviving at all. So he's going to talk about Kodak. Uh, Four years ago, the company that was synonymous with photography declared bankruptcy as Kodak went under, having failed to effectively respond to digital photography. In many ways, Kodak sabotaged its future by by refusing to respond to the massive changes in culture. Kodak bet too much of its future on the past film photography, and it lost. It's going to go on to say that that newspapers are having some of the same problem. And so 
What I see happening in Kodak, he says, and in some newspaper is something I also see among church leaders. Hmm. Here are three ways church leaders end up sabotaging the future mission of the church. So it's a great setup. Kodak, I don't know if you've ever heard the story, but uh, they kind of said, nope, we're not getting into the whole digital photography world. Uh And that turned out to be problematic. Same as Blockbuster, right? Blockbuster was like, "Eh, why would we buy Netflix? Uh Probably would have been a good move on their part. But (laughs) this idea that as churches, as businesses, we hold on, we we place our bets on the past versus what what the changes are in the future uh, is huge. So let me do the first one. He says, when he talks about three key issues now church leaders uh, face, he says, confusing the method with the mission. Hmm. Too many leaders mix up method and mission. That's one of the things that happened to Kodak and happened in uh, journalism. It's also happening in the church world. This mistake is so easy to make in leadership. It says this, a method is a current approach that helps you accomplish the mission. It's how you do what you do. The mission is why you exist. There's a lot more on that, but that's a huge one, man. Don't you think like this idea of like, not just this is what we're trying to accomplish, but this is how we've always accomplished that. And and you should not you should not be willing to throw out the mission, but method methodology should always be on the table for tweaks or scrapping altogether. Yeah, I man, I have so many thoughts on this one because it's so much easier with the benefit of perspective to look over our mm-hmm. shoulders and say, "Oh, you dumb Kodak," you know. But mm-hmm. like these are. Sp- really, really smart women and men making these decisions. You know, it's again, when we are looking back on mistakes like Kodak, like Blockbuster, it can be easy to forget how, you know, tortured they must've been, you know, at some level to even think some some of that stuff through. And I, I will admit, like I, I totally get the tension. Like if you, if you worked really hard to develop a method to use this word or a system or a strategy, mm-hmm. it could be so daunting and it can, it can throw your equilibrium off thinking about like, hey, pastor, leader, entrepreneur, whatever, you need to rethink this. Like, that took us four years to develop. Like, what? <laughs> that's yeah. a lot more work to even think about, you know, because often it's not like a tweak. Often it's like, hey, we're in need of an right. overhaul, an overhaul, you know, gosh, even like transferring an old phone to a new phone feels like a chore, <laughs> let alone like a whole systemic shift. You yeah. know, but it's, yeah. it's necessary. However, I would say not always. There's certain right. things, especially in church work, you're like, Hey, maybe we, someone's like, oh, we should get with the times to start shooting communion out of a confetti cannon. I'm like, nah, I don't think that's <laughs> maybe a awesome. method. That's a, gosh, that's a method that maybe needs to, you know, stay put. So either way, number two is a failure to clarify what the real mission is. Imagine what might have happened if someone at Kodak had asked, are we in the film business or the photography business? Ooh, that's good. If Kodak was in the film business, the future would be dim. But if Kodak has decided it was in the photography business, the future could have been very different. Instead, Facebook decided it was in the photography business when it bought Instagram. And Apple decided it was in the photography business when it developed the iPhone. If you were in the newspaper business today, a great question would be to ask, are we in the newspaper business or the news business? Again, the future changes when you start asking questions that clarify the real mission. So as a church leader... What questions are you asking? And he's going to kind of get into some very church specific things there. But before we get to the third one, I'd love to know what you think of that. That's a great one. If, if Kodak, <laughs> it's all about the question you ask, yes. right? Yes. Kodak going, it's not about film. It's about photography. So what's the, what's the future of photography? Uh, that's a really good one. That's a good one. Number three, real fast for, t- for time. 
unwillingness to change methods to support the real mission. We just talked about this. Far too many church leaders are afraid to change their methods. But once you clarify your real mission, change becomes so much easier. Think about it. If you have a clear sense of what you're called to do, then when you see potential gain ahead, you'll change your methods to advance your mission. When you see a chance to reach more people, You'll change your services and programming to advance your mission. And of course, when you fail at your mission, you won't stubbornly cling to ineffective methods. You'll gladly embrace new methods to advance your missions. Kind of what we talked about before, but it doesn't become about your methods. It becomes about what are we trying to accomplish and what's the best way to get there in the future, whether that's how we did it in the past or not. Yeah, let me just read how he ends it. because I think this is, I think this is a good way not just for pastors and even just church people, but for anyone who has a stake in the future to think about. He says, so can you just ignore all this and hope it goes away? Well, that's kind of what Kodak did. And just realize when you become more wedded to the methods than the mission, the good leaders leave. That's what's happening in dying industries. People who work for Instagram would not want to work for Kodak and reporters for Mashable may never be comfortable at Print Daily. The church has a better mission than any other organization on the planet. The challenge for this generation of church leaders, and I would add maybe any leader at all, is mm -hmm. to keep the methods fluid and the mission sacred. The more we do that, the more effective we will be. Like always, that is up on our Facebook page. We would love to know what you think. And with that, we conclude today's show. Thank you all so much for joining us today. We'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.